coming at you from Handsome Headquarters here in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm Lee Sanger-Golden, and you're listening to me talk on the internet. I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Ben. How you doing, buddy? Uh, pretty good. Great. How you doing? I, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I just took the dog out for a stroll, Miss Moneypenny, and today was the first day... I think since this whole lockdown went into effect, and I know we've been talking about it, every podcast has been talking about it, every show has been talking about it, so I hate to keep talking about it, but it was the first day that I went out and forgot about this lockdown for a second. It was just a nice morning, I had had a cup of coffee, I was there with my cute little dog walking around, and I I forgot to put on a face mask, I didn't have any gloves or anything, and then... I saw someone drive by with a face mask. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, the world has totally changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just for a brief, wonderful moment, I was living a normal life. Um, but it's over now, and I'm back to uh, being on a Zoom call. <laughs> so I have a question on normal, because you know yeah. like people use the term new normal. Right. Who gets to decide when the new normal just becomes the normal? That's oh, my that, big question. That's an excellent I think that's point. what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember like back in 2017 or even beforehand, like as the as the sort of um, Trump effect started rising, as the sort of Trumpification of politics, this sort of lowest common denominator reality TV show, dog whistling um, politics started to rise. There's a lot of people writing, you know, Atlantic articles saying this is not normal. This is not normal. And then the inauguration happened and people were like, this is not normal. And uh, it got to a point where we're like, no, 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 this is totally normal. This is the way politics are right now. Politics are weird, uh, race baiting, dog whistling, uh, divisive um, stupidity. Hmm. And that's the new normal. So speaking of all of that, I want to talk a little bit about a guy who has kind of was in the national spotlight uh, for a brief, bright, shining moment (laughs) uh, from about 2016 to about 2018 uh, before he sort of lurked back into the shadows. Um, And this gentleman uh, founded a online news organization of of the populist right-wing variety and um, eventually became the chief strategist for then-candidate Trump and then ended up uh, in a White House job. And I'm, of course, talking about Breitbart finder, founder Steve Bannon, who was, you know, kind of a, a murky figure. He was sort of like a um, Hollywood producer type, but not really a creative type, more of a money guy. And then he eventually founded this um, this website and then whipped up this whole sort of nationalist, white nationalist side of uh, politics, whipped them up into kind of a frenzy and became sort of this, I wouldn't say the, he's not the farthest outpost of the far right. That's more like Daily Stormer and, you know, um, Andrew England and all those crazy Nazis. But he was kind of like a, um, a checkpoint <laughs> on the way to, the Breitbart's like a checkpoint on the way to the, to the far right. And uh, yeah, Breitbart became um, that checkpoint. And Steve Bannon, the founder, became sort of the, um, the boogeyman. I believe there was even a, um, SNL uh, sketch um, where 
like he was just like a grim reaper or he was like Skeletor from He-Man or something like that. And he's, you know, just a, he's a gross looking man. He has like a bunch of like, his skin is bad. His hair is bad. His people shit on him for his style and all these things. But um, I will have to say, I never really listened to the guy talk just because um, of all of the horrible things um, that his, sort of messaging has done to our country and to political discourse. And um, it was recommended by my wife that I listened to an interview with Mr. Bannon, uh, who's no longer with the, the Trump administration. He, he got knocked out um, by um, this podcast with these, uh, these two women, Dasha, and I forget the other uh, woman's name, called Red Scare. And they're sort of dirtbag left offshoots of the sort of El Chapo or a Chapo Trap House, rather, universe of Dirtbag Left. Um, and if you don't know what the Dirtbag Left is, um, get into it. Um, there's, there, uh, there's some interesting content out there. I don't always agree with everything these crazy socialists say. Um, but um, yeah, they, they've had Red Scare. These two women have had what I would say the two best political uh, interviews of this whole campaign season. The first is with Tulsi Gabbard, which was a few months back. Um, I believe the title of that episode was Aloha Bitches. <laughs> that's, that's their quote. We're not using the B word ourselves here. Uh, and the, the recent one was, I believe, called War Room with Steve Bannon. And they were very interesting interviews. And, and you told me that you had a chance to listen to the, the interview and, and uh, had some notes. So I really want to, to talk about it. Uh, and I want to talk about um, the sort of main topic I want to get into today is what I like to call uh, the loss of nuanced opinion and debate. So yeah, what were your initial reflections? You know, you said you had some notes. What, what were your thoughts about this interview? Um, do you want me to go through all of them or pick a couple and then we'll develop? I would say um, go through some know, of them. Yeah, go th- start out with some of them, and then we'll, uh, we'll 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 converse around your first points, and we'll kind of work our way through it. Since you took notes, and I just kind of sat there dumbstruck listening to this interview, um, maybe you should kind of you can guide the conversation, and I'll comment around. Okay, so there's a couple things that I think we could revolve around in terms of the nuance, as you said. Of uh, okay, but um, so first, I so a lot of so so I think what we find a lot of times when people too reflexively say, um, oh, they're, 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 they really understand things the same, or someone's like, oh, Trump and Bernie are both, um, have, bo- have, have their diagnosis correctly or something like that. So I would say that a lot of what he says is, is, is quite real and he does bring it to the level of, he brings us in towards the end that it's, it's not so much D versus R, Democrat versus Republican in the U.S. It's really populist. Yeah, elite that, versus the working man or the working person. Exactly, and you know he calls a populist. It's also socialist versus the neoconservatives and the neoliberals. Yes, um, and the neoliberals them together too. Yeah, because they really see this. They have this reverence for consolidated power exactly. and wealth and the ability for money to speak more loudly than absolutely anything else. And I think 
So I thought about that money, you know, money speaking so loudly. He refers to Davos a few times, which is mm-hmm. the party um, of Davos. He refers the to the Davos. global and, elites as the party of Davos. <laughs> yeah. So the, there was a book written by a reporter that was let in there one year and then never let back in. Yeah. Um, he wrote a book called The Agony of Mamun. Interesting. Um, man, what, how do you spell it? Man and it's, uh, it was written about 20 years ago. Okay. Um, or late, actually more, late 90s. I've read it a few times. I should read it again. It's about 50 pages long. It's an essay he wrote of just, he, he, I would say if anyone saw what was coming from a place like Davos, this book is it. I can look yeah. it up and um, later on. But basically he was saying at one point, he just in passing, he's like, you know, all the lawyers are there, all the accountants mm-hmm. and just on but immediately what struck me is if you look at the construct between populist versus neoconservative neoliberal the first question that or first thought that came to my mind is the reason you see accountants and lawyers there is because the things that make decisions uh are money and laws that's why you don't see teachers and farmers for instance yeah because who are the people actually doing the work passing on knowledge growing food doing things they're not creating the world order right now yeah that breakdown and so he gets to a lot of these interesting points yes but baked into those what he thinks we should do is still this incredibly consumerist focused yes future and And a shitty nationalist thing which and he tries to separate nationalism from racism you know he's like i'm not racist and he does express a, a lot of concern for the 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 people of china and he makes a big distinction between the the chinese uh, the CCP and uh, the actual Chinese people. And he's obsessed with China, clearly. Um, but he, he tries to make himself out as not a racist person. So he's like, no, 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 it's just about nationalism. We have to acknowledge that if nas- the nations are important. We have to acknowledge that if you're an American citizen, you should have more rights, which I guess in the abstract is separate from race. But once you talk about nationalism, even if you're um, a educated person uh, and you're trying to separate it from race, um, nationalism <laughs> becomes equated uh, with race once you get down the line to people who maybe are not going to make that kind of um, more intellectual interpretation of what nationalism is. They're going to boil it down to, to race. And because it's boiled down to race, it's going to become a racist thing. So even if you're the propagator of this nationalist thing and you're like, no, 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 it's not about race. It's about how an American should have more rights than someone else. Well, someone down the line reading a, a comment on a relink of a forward of a Breitbart article is just going to take that as racism and be like, yeah, yeah fuck well, Mexican people and, and Chinese people. And the reason it's overtly racist too is because he refers a lot to entrepreneurialism yes. and really what you could call the power of the markets which is yes. allowing people to do whatever they want but the mm-hmm. thing is, he starts from this position of like well if every citizen should have better rights yes but the thing is if you add in his thoughts on entrepreneurialism and this consumer production mentality mm-hmm. what you really what he's really saying is let's start today as if it's day one and go yes. from there but it makes no acknowledgement of all the unearned power and unearned privilege that's come over the last few generations. And so it's very easy for him to say, oh, I I don't care about race. 
Well, yeah, you don't care, but you're not. But the people reading your articles are getting whipped up into a racist fervor. Well, because he is right. Because he's saying that everything that came before is not yes. that important. Exactly. Well, he's structurally it's structurally racist. Exactly. There's no uh, acknowledgement through what entrepreneur yes. entrepreneurship doesn't acknowledge doesn't have to acknowledge slavery and Jim Crow era right. and post civil. It's just like. And, and so structural racism is the real big, exactly is the real big problem. Cause like the Democrats of the world, uh, uh, they, they sort of say, Hey, look, we're not racist because like, we always have like a multicolored coalition that we put on TV and like, we like, Hey, look, we, we like black people and we like Latinx people and we like gay people and we like all people. Yay. Look at us. But it's like, but you're still supporting the structures of racism or the structures that, that put into place structural racism and that's economic yeah. inequality. And, and also the, the people who are maybe sort of moderates, but want to push back against the idea that the, that the, the system is, is racist. So, well, it's not real. And this is, these are the Adam Carollas of the world where it's like, well, it's not really about racism. It's about like the wealth gap. It's being poor is being worse than, than being a uh, disadvantaged race. It's not about race. Well, it is because the disadvantaged people are, disproportionately of um, non-white backgrounds. But let's right. take a step back and, and let's just talk a little bit about uh, Steve Bannon's worldview, which I have not, uh, to be honest, I have not really delved into. I, during the election and, and after the inauguration of, of T. Rump, I uh, did read a lot of Breitbart. And just to kind of see like, what are, what are they saying about us? <laughs> but I never really listened to a lot of interviews with him just because he's so physically disgusting. I couldn't look at Mr. Bannon, but listening to him on a podcast, I was able to, to uh, sort of hear his, his worldview. And it is as such that um, basically there is a managed decline occurring uh, uh, in the American political and uh, socioeconomic structure, power structure, which is the global elites, and these are both left-wing and right-wing people, have sort of signed a deal with the devil with China to basically um, put forth a globalist um, economic structure in which we profit off of the uh, open flow of commerce with China and um, and basically take advantage of the slave labor that essentially the Chinese government has in their country because they, you know, treat people very poorly and they don't have as many individual freedoms as us. So basically the left and right wing elites of our country for to um, better their own business interests are have made a deal with the devil. And I, I'm not saying that... <laughs> that the Chinese government is the devil and certainly not that Chinese people are, are the devil, but they've made a deal with the devil to um, benefit off the slave labor of, um, of the Chinese people. And to his credit, Steve Bannon points out that the Chinese people are the ones that are the most, um, are the biggest victims of this. And because of that, the, the global elites uh, of the world, and I hate using these, these stupid, like, bright, you know, Breitbart terms of global elites, because a lot of times that ends up being dog whistled into Jewish people, of course, and also Bannon claims, oh, I'm totally anti-Semitic. I'm, I'm so anti-Semitic. That's why I support Israel so much. Okay, sure, whatever. Um, that's a whole other discussion. But basically, uh, because of, of uh, 
the richies exploiting slave labor in China to get us cheap goods. Of course, we've we've shipped off all of the jobs into China, right? And um, therefore, um, the American worker, the average Joe, as guys like Bannon like to like to refer to to those folks, uh, the average Joe has uh, seen the you know um, wealth gap expand, has seen their wages decline, has seen their jobs go overseas, and. And from my understanding, what he's sort of calling this is managed decline, which is like the elite people who are suckling off of the business class and uh, this deal with the devil, with the Chinese government, um, that they are seeing like the, the decline of American prosperity across the board in terms of middle and working class people. But since they're rich and their kids are rich and they have managed to accumulate so much power and wealth, they're fine with this, quote, managed decline, unquote, of American prosperity. And so, of course, his answer to this is, well, we need more um, populist sort of uh, dynamic personalities. And he gives a lot of credit to uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC. And um, and I think this is that intersection of populism where people who support Trump are, are sort of aligned in this anti-globalist, um, you could argue protectionist um, stance are in some ways like just a, a, a backflip away from being Bernie supporters, which I don't really think is us, <laughs> you know, but... Um, uh, but I think that that is sort of the uncomfortable conclusion that he makes. It's like, oh, the Bernie bros and my, my bros are, are, are the same. I'm like, no, it's not. Because your bros are racist weirdos uh, who are standing in front of the Michigan State House brandishing guns and coughing on each other and saying that this is all about freedom. Whereas the quote Bernie bros, unquote, are people who just say, hey, um, you know, maybe people should have a right to like be healthy and educated. <laughs> but he makes this false equivocation, you know, between people who want people to be educated and uh, well taken care of health wise and therefore support bro, uh, uh, Bernie with the people who hate Mexicans for taking their jobs and uh, and therefore vote Trump and then wave guns at the state house in front of their um, female governor. So that's my <laughs> breakdown of Steve Bannon's worldview. And although I find the, the, the uh, sort of... Um, his strategy for solving these problems to be disgusting, racist, and um, fundamentally misguided um, and, and stupid and obsessed with this weird idea of the fourth turn, which is kind of a uh, frat boy interpretation of, uh, of history through the lens of, uh, you know, some kind of um, not uh, Freudian uh, archetypes. Who's the archetype guy? Well, well, no. So there's this fourth wave thing. This there was an economist, Young, Carl right? Young. Yeah, but it's Jungian well, uh, interpretation of historic of history. It's Kondratiev, Nikolai Kondratiev. He wrote a book called The Major Economic Cycles almost a yeah. hundred years ago, and he he did what he called uh, like super cycles, like multi generational yes. economic cycles and. The thing is, if you expand that out, I think there's some anthropologists. There's obviously things happen annually, yeah. seasonally, decadal, generationally. You, you could also say we're living in a bigger super cycle, which is yeah. capitalism. Um, That's more and, like a three or 400 yeah, so there's also year old experiment. Ways to look at it. And a lot of his 
in the interview, just way that he was a little too dismissive of like, maybe people now will start organizing. It's sure. like, it never actually does. As I don't think the guys yeah. really ever read any work no. by actual people have spent their life organizing, which I've spent a lot of time doing yes. the last 10 years. And it's basically that people are organizing every day and it sure. takes, to get anything done that's pro- progressive, which means broadening yeah. power. Rather and moving than, forward. Yeah. <laughs> Progressing than, as a society. If, if you want to just go back and consolidate power to where it started, that's a much easier thing to do. Yeah, we're already doing they, that. We're already doing right, that. Exactly, because it's much we're easier. We're creating these, ca- these captains of industry are just and becoming that's what neoliberalism sovereign lords, feudal lords. Yeah, neoliberalism does that. Yeah. They, I think a lot of Democrats maybe realized 50 years ago, they're like, it's too hard to push against the powers that be. Let's just try to privatize social services. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like, to and really the Bannons of the world are obsessed with thinking that, well, yeah, the, you know, people employee based healthcare is, is, is the best way to, is the best delivery system of healthcare. Yeah. Even and, though and we're, so, we're so, watching the ruins of that, we're watching that system just fall apart under its first stress. Exactly. And what he really wants, era. like if you look at this, the CIA fact book has an amazing amount of, comparable data across every country. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, there's gaps in it sometimes. But what he's really sticking to is like, if you look at the United States, our household consumption takes up almost 70% of our economy. Consumption of goods and services? Household consumption. Yeah. Whereas if you look at a lot of European countries, you get in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Um, The other two categories are government consumption, which is... Basically, so is this services. because we're we're buying too much cheap shit from from China? <laughs> yeah, our so when they say, and that's why like our shutdown hits so much quickly and harder is yeah. Most of the things that happen are done through the production of goods and yes. some services, but goods too. But services to support that government consumption is all of this stuff. It's public goods, environment, and society, and yeah. then you have investment in fixed capital, which are yeah. plants and stuff. So China, for instance, only has less than 40% household consumption, but they put right. 43% in fixed capital, which is all their power plants, construction, things like that. Stuff uh, of actual value. That's not right. just like this things on like, you know, top five things under $10 that you can get on Amazon that will make you happy for a second, but just end up being garbage. Right. And so what we really want to move to in which Bannon in, in this interview shows that he does not and then you also look at the trade balance. The United States, we know, has a negative trade balance. We import more yeah. than what he export. What he really wants is us to export more, which is sure. we layer in climate change and progress. Yeah. What we really want to be doing, and this is where populists and socialists diverge, what we really want to be doing is increasing government consumption. And government... Interesting. And we also don't need... He's very much about the national government. Right. We have... I'm all you want all levels. We need a bigger push. And I think we hopefully will start seeing it with yeah. people getting engaged in local politics. Yeah. The thing is, and that's why I like public banks because the power to create money, if it's more diffuse, you don't always have to, you don't only have to focus on the federal. And so right. government consumption in you know, Denmark, for instance, is 25% worth 17. So that's only eight percentage points different, but they're yeah. spending almost 50% more on social and and thing is so the thing is like if government consumption we generally call education public services um environmental things uh-huh. those are 
climate change neutral or positive, that they help it. So what we really want to see is the consumption bucket by households go down, government consumption go up, but it doesn't have to be always top down. It can be a lot bottom up and then investment in fixed capital uh, that also can go down um, slowly because, you know, you can't just pull the rug out from under people. Okay, bringing it back to import yeah. exports. Let's and take so it a little bit away from. He wants basically to just more exports. an exporter, but yes. it doesn't. It's still very climate change inducing. He wants to be China, but with the United States. Uh, yes, mentality. And I do love that he shits on uh, that he shits on Henry Kissinger uh, and uh, uh, and. Uh, um, well, I love that he shits on Henry Kissinger in his idea of Thucydides, Thucydides trap, the idea that like the emerging power, which in this case, China, is on a crash course collision with the United States um, as the, the like current hegemon that basically if you look at through the sphere of history. And again, this is this st- stupid frat boy view of history, similar to looking at it through the fourth turn perspective uh, that, well, based on what we've seen before, uh, America and China have to go to war or a kinetic war, uh, as, as Mr. Bannon would call it, since we're already in sort of a information uh, an economic war with them. And he shits against this and basically says, we're, we're fundamentally compatible with the, the Chinese people. And it's not the Chinese people, it's the CCP. And the fact that the like the uh, the right and left wing um, neolibs and, and, uh, and neocons have made this deal with them because it's cheap labor and cheap shit. So getting back to the export import, not to get too wonky, I love the wonkiness you bring to it. I'm gonna try to bring it back to the common man here, Mm -hmm. Um, or common person rather. Uh, The common uh, gender neutral non-cis person. Uh, The average J, as you might say. When it comes to import exports, shouldn't we just be exporting what we're good at and other people want (laughs) and importing what other countries uh, are better at and what we need rather than what's cheapest, right? Shouldn't it boil well, down to that? And to bring so, it back to uh, like a, yeah. the, the kind of, let's go back, back to uh, frat boy history and talk about like caveman times, okay? You and I are both cavemen, right? And um, I am really good at making arrowheads, right? And you're really good at making, I don't know, what are you good at making? Um, bean curd. Bean curd. Okay, so you are you're good. You you're growing some beans. Okay, so maybe this isn't caveman time. Maybe we're we're just indigenous folk, right? And yeah, you're good at making bean curd, and I'm making and I'm good at um making arrows. Uh, so we trade because you're good at that. I'm good at that, and uh, so we trade, right? But then it turns out there's this other guy. And he makes shitty arrowheads and shitty bean curd, but he does it super cheap. So um, basically what happens is I end up hanging on to uh, my, uh, my arrowheads and don't sell them. And, uh, but then I get subsidized by the tribe for making arrowheads. We have this big stockpile of arrowheads that we don't use, but the, the, the tribal chief guy, he's like, oh, we'll, we'll offset that and we'll pay you that. And then instead of having to pay taxes, you just give us a bunch of arrowheads. And then I, instead I buy uh, my cheap bean curd from, from him. Then you're stuck with all of this bean curd that you can't get rid of, but um, the chief refuses to subsidize it. And so you're economically fucked. Is that, so this is, that's a, so yeah, I've, 
That's a great way to think about trade. And the thing is, when you have, um, it's not yes or no on. Oh, and by the way, the guy who's making the cheap uh, bean curd and the guy that's making the cheap, um, the cheap arrowheads, he's also making his sons and daughters do that for free and not giving them any of the profits. And then also, and if they complain about that, putting, locking them in a cave. So like, if you look at the way it's taught in like say an economics class, um, this is spot on. This is very much how it is, but that's a person to person. Someone's deciding whether or not to trade where it gets really messy is, you know, maybe you have a small company and they want to import a few goods where it starts getting sure. really messy is with really big companies. So let's say, and then it comes all down to power dynamics. And that's why there's yeah. been an immense amount of focus to push down unions for 40 to 50 years by the GOP party. And then right. the democratic party just kind of hope that they could just get around that, but it doesn't appreciate enough about the power dynamics. So let's, Take so you, you the bean, company. the bean curd guy, you, uh, you team up with um, uh, another guy who's a seed guy. And, well, no, uh, let's say I'm at a bean curd company that now produces a billion dollars of bean curd a year. Uh huh. And so I'm a billion dollar company. I've got two thousand employees. I don't have. They have no representation. There's two thousand indigenous people making bean curd in our tribe. That's cool. Forget about your. Yeah. So there's two thousand people, but there's <laughs> you know, an eight person board, there's four corporate people. They sit around, they talk all day. They can save 2% by going over to another country. Yes. That's for those 10 people, that's $20 million. So each of them gains 2 million. Mm -hmm. The 2000 workers might be 2%. I don't really care. Like this is, that's, that's my livelihood. Like, I need my job, um, but and so, but they they don't really have that say. And at the end of the day, they're going to keep their job because it's the job they have. They have a social network there; um, it's what they do, and they'll just have to suck it up and deal with it, basically, because because of these power dynamics. And so, what it really comes down to is saying like. Trade is fine, but it's also who's making the decision of saving something like one or two percent a year, and who's profiting off of it. And well, it's all about. So why does money speak so? And is loud? and is this bet and is this better off for the whole tribe, or is it just better exactly. off for that guy making off. the bean curd? That's the what guy Bannon, making the arrows yeah. and the chief. And that's what Bannon and others mean by elite politics. That it's those yeah. five or ten people trying to make an extra couple million dollars a year at the expense of. It's still ten thousand dollars yeah. per employee. That um, mm-hmm. so Steve Bannon wants to his his worldview then is um, it's uh, it's not the fault of the kids working for the guy making the cheap bean curd and the cheap arrowheads. It's not his, it's not their fault, and that they are the ones that are abused. Um, and uh, on the side of the the other side. Um, the the people making all of the bean curd, the good bean curd that's now not getting bought, they need to rise up and um, basically uh, convince the the elites, the chief, to to stop dealing with this cheap producer who's abusing his kids and to force everybody to um, to buy the the good bean curd that's made. Yeah, uh, in or the I would bring it. But the, the people that he riled, but he riles up those people to get that by saying. 
oh, the kids are those those dirty kids that work for uh, for the the cheap guy. You got to hate them and not give them rights and not let them into our country. Yeah. Well, then I would take this one step further, too. This is also the difference between, say, the funded and the unfunded revolution. The funded mm. revolution is primarily done through the assistance of nonprofits and doing what you said. To, let's change this one company's practices. The unfunded revolution is saying, fuck that. We're going to change the rules of the game so that no company can do no person in any company can do this because that's way more powerful. It takes longer. That's why you see, yep. you know, that's why it's easy talking about super cycles. It takes longer, but the effects are may are, are reverberate throughout. And so that's why I don't really like, like calling it a managed decline makes it sound like that's one of the strategies of the elite. But it's the, just, that's the byproduct. Yeah. It's a byproduct. What they're really doing. I is, don't think that the, the Hillary Clinton's uh, or the Paul Wolfowitz's, the neos on either side. Um, I can't think of a better modern neocon example, but let's let's say the Joe Bidens and the um, I don't know Nikki Haley's of the world. Let's say it's not that they or the Mitt Romneys. Let's say the Mitt Romneys and the Joe Bidens of the world. It's not necessarily that they want the the prosperity of the, the American people to decline. It's just that in their quest for uh, the selfish preservation of the uh, neo elites holding on to the economic prosperity of our country, that the byproduct of that is the decline exactly. of the American people. And what they but do I think that's where he loses, and he loses yeah. me a little bit. Oh, right. by the way, just a social justice, yeah. just a social justice warrior for a second. I'm going to break down the, some of the dumb things that I said and acknowledge the, the trouble uh, problematic things that I said in my mm. weird analogy. At the beginning, I said cavemen people. Then I switched over to arrowheads, which are normally associated here with the indigenous people of the United States, which were of, well, before they were in the United States of our beautiful land. And these were not, quote, uh, cave people, unquote. They were very uh, advanced people in terms of their, their thinking about uh, the land, the world, uh, and the interaction with people and animals. And they are actually better people uh, in terms of the way that they, um, they lived in this land than most of us. And uh, I'm sorry if I offended anybody. Um, the real cavemen are the stupid, our stupid white ancestors that were yeah. in England and came I over think, with all their guns. All right, end of social have, justice warrior protecting my own ass. But it's true, and that's why I think we should have things like, uh, you know, more anthropologists making yes. policy than lawyers. Lawyers right. have a technical skill. It doesn't say anything about who they are as people. Right. Because then you get then true. you get torture memo people. You get yeah, the, or you just get people that really understand how to write it well and make a compelling argument, but what they're arguing could be terrible, yeah. even if they think it's good. But yeah, so it's so, not really a managed decline. They're looking yeah. at where, you know, like he was saying sometimes about like modern slavery. It's yeah. like the reason they went to China and other countries is because the labor laws weren't as strong. Yeah. And also they pushed actively in the U.S. to allow them to do this in the first place. Because We enabled it. We enabled it by buying their shit. Well, we didn't even enable. First, it was made legal because it was something that was not acceptable sure. before, and then, and then, and that's yes. a common narrative. That's a pretty common narrative among the sort of like Wall Street Journal readers of the world. Is that yeah, China is this emerging economic power? Although, hey, the the news that we're getting post uh, uh, post coronavirus out of there is is like a indicating a, a total free fall in their economy, just like we have here. Um, but the, the, the common narrative among the WSJ uh, readers is that 
well, the reason why they're this emerging economy is that they cheated, basically. The way they handle intellectual property rights and the way they handle um, the rights of, of workers and worker protection has basically allowed them to cheat to become the emerging power, whereas we're stuck with all of our regulations, so we can't be as successful. All oh, these stupid regulations. Yeah. Anyway, that sends me into a, a side. I'm going to go into a, a slight side note about um, – the Republican obsession with deregulating as a way to become more competitive, which is, of course, ends up just being a, a, a um, monetary break for the, the big polluters of the world and the, um, the abusers of the working class, um, that, that deregulation. And I always, I, I'm going to start bringing this back just to, for just another stupid frat boy analogy, which is the idea of deregulating um, is like playing football without rules <laughs> okay uh which is yeah like football is a fun is a fun game for a lot of people uh, but there's rules okay uh like you have to stay on the field uh you know <laughs> you you uh there's no unnecessary roughness or whatever so the idea that that like of deregulating the economy just completely deregulating it uh and the, the of course one of the practices of the uh, trump administration is for every uh, regulation they put in, they have to take out three, I think is, is was their general rule. Um, I don't know how well that's played out. But basically, the way that the Republicans want to run our economy is to have a football game with no rules. So it'd be like if, if football, if there was a football game, but you could bring a gun on the field and or an ATV, you could ride an ATV with a gun on the field, shoot the opposing team, take their ball, then drive off. <laughs> <laughs> go to a storage unit, put the ball away, lock it up and say, Hey, we won. That is the equivalent. And so, and so that is why the WSJ readers of the world are so pissed at China becoming the emerging power is they're like, Oh, all of our stupid regulations. Oh, well, if we could just deregulate everybody and, and treat the, the earth like shit and treat our workers like shit, then we could really compete with China. Yeah, no. So I think, let me uh, piggyback. Yeah, bring that. it back. Yeah, piggyback, so, bring it back. I, I think the, uh, the analogy to a football game is actually quite useful. So first, let me start. There's this essay written in the 60s by Joe Freeman. She was yeah. part of the uh, women's liberation yeah. movement in the, um, she wrote this in 1970, I think, maybe late 60s. Yeah. Um, it's called The Tyranny of Structurelessness. Yes. And she was opining specifically on structuralist groups used to organize efforts to get things done. Mm -hmm. But her, the reason the essay, is, the essay has stayed so in vogue yeah. is that one of her big lines is the idea becomes a smokescreen for the strong or the lucky to yes. establish unquestioned hegemony over others. Yes. And so we take it to a football game. Yes. When you say deregulation, when someone says deregulation, what they really mean is re-regulation by someone else. Right. If it's just the people playing. Lack of game. regulation is a kind of regulation, let's say. Right. And, but the, football and the reason why football's so analogy well, is because it is a competition. Strongest. Yeah, because the strongest people, the strong or the lucky, you know, lucky that they were born so big and strong, will make the rules because it's a game of football and they'll be like, no, tackling is fine. They make the rules because tackling is fine because they always win at tackling. So right. it's like you can't just when you, you don't actually have deregulation is also a smokescreen. It's bullshit. Mm -hmm. And the Security idea that this is all about 
this is all about competition, right? Like, well, the reason why, you know, capitalism works is this competition. You got to, if you want to have a good car, you got to be able to have two car companies right. compete, right? And just like football, it's a competition, but just like football, this competition has to have guidelines so that the other team um, in the, in this competition doesn't just drive onto the field in the ATV right. with an AR-15 and start shooting people to take the ball, which is basically so, yeah, <laughs> what the quote global elites are doing. So yeah, and competition, if we say, was one of the underlying fundamental principles that allows capitalism to function. Starting in the 1886, I think it was in the U.S., when the Supreme Court passed a rule, uh, a ruling that the 14th Amendment could now apply to corporations, that corporations could have the same rights as people. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it's become all about... Which is totally tied in with... with keeping slavery alive in the country or but also anti-competitive practices it, exactly. was, it was built on the ability to regrow because basically when the u.s started they wanted to in, in their economic structure wanted to leave the monarchy and um the the creation of monopolies by the powers but and so at first it, it looked like that could happen but then it's been and when we say monopoly can be an oligarchy, like right now, the four largest banks or bank holding companies in the U.S. have 85 percent of the assets in the U.S. And that, you know, they could say, oh, it's not a monopoly because there's four of us. But when you use the word monopoly in economics, that is a monopoly. If it's you look at the concentration of power. Right. And that's one of the strongest. Monopolies. You can have four players in the game of monopoly. There's four sides to the board, but it's still fucking monopoly. Yeah, and they and, and well, with Monopoly, there's only four players, but in real life, there's four players, and then there's fifty million others. Right. Um, and and so it's complete and utter nonsense. Um, yeah. So, uh, do you have any other more uh, notes that you want to uh, get through before oh, we bring it back to the main anyone, theme? Anytime anyone uses the word bureaucratic to describe the government, what I always say is there's it's bureaucratic in in government administration in uh, yeah. private, but basically if you think that the government is inefficient, it's like, what about profits and, and um, corporate pay and shareholder value? Something yeah. like an estimated $25 trillion has been extracted from the US oh. over the last, uh, I think it was 15 or 20 years. So it's like- So insane. So the, the whole idea of this inefficiency thing on why government shouldn't do things, is so bad. It's just, it's not based. It's just, it's, it's become like a reflexive thing where if you say the word bureaucratic and government and inefficient, yes. you can dismiss it. But I liked how the two- And most large corporations are, are totally bureaucratic and in many ways, super inefficient. They're incredible. Yeah. Because they pay what, like 70, like if someone looked at that cup of coffee analogy, like 70% yeah. of that cup of coffee goes to overhead and profits. And it's just like how- that's not true in the government it's like 40 percent, but it's like it's paying people no one becomes a billionaire through this and it's just like and you can get voted out of office and obviously there's corruption it's not like government's perfect there's corruption everywhere but the idea is like if you don't if you only have a lot of corruption in very small circles that's where you see stuff like china russia the us uh and hungary now the guy is you know, uh, is ruling by decree. He's yeah. made himself. A, so it's just like right. corruption is ever present and you need, but there's a big difference between um, 
legal, like, the, you know, this one guy at, at, on corruption looks at the U.S. as the most corrupt, partly because we've made our corruption legal over time. Yep. We do in other countries, this country. So it's like, you got to break that down and allow it to, to kind of, yeah. You know, a lot we've of done little, that in a more nuanced way where yeah, it's like, let's say all the pores on your arm, instead of being tiny little pores, you just had one open gap. You'd be much more susceptible to disease. disease and yeah. Cause it would just get infected. Yeah. So what you got want scratch. Is, that's why, you know, that's why gra- that's why like when we say government, if there's 15 levels or something, you got a local, you got neighbor, all these things, it's inefficient in some ways, but it's more efficient in others. And it also doesn't leave a big open gap inside your arm where, anything can come in that wants, you know, like you wake up in the morning, you got a spider in your, in your, in your arm. This is gross. <laughs> it's disgusting, but that's what it is. That's what we got here. Yeah. That's what monopolies are. So let's, let's, let's bring it back to um, the theme of today, which is oh, yeah. loss of nuance opinion in political debate. And I don't just mean at the, I don't mean at the, the high level, I mean, especially at the person to person Thanksgiving table uh, uh, level of the discussion. And this is um, the reason why I I am mentioning um, the Red Scare ladies as awesome interviewers um, and how they've had these two great interviews uh, with um, people who are vilified for different reasons uh, by the sort of establishment centrist left in our country, which is Tulsi Gabbard, who basically is sort of an anti-interventionist who's like, I've served in the military and I think that like our stupid military industrial complex uh, and our obsession with being like uh, diametrically uh, opposed enemies to to Russia are, are much to our detriment. And so, of course, <laughs> if you if you ever mention like, well, that's actually might a good point, uh, might be a good point. People, the, the Clintonians of the world will say, well, you know, she's a Russian asset. <laughs> and it's Russian and it's Russian assets that that are the reason why we lost uh we lost the elections like of course the the of course the the Russians were interfering with our election but then also like of course the democrats lost just because not as many people voted for them it's not like the the russians sent over people uh to our country in Gracho Marx outfits and then they voted for Trump right or they well, they remember, convinced us won by three and a half million votes too yeah Sure. But like I always say, an L is still an L, dude. It's still an L on the board. Oh, yeah. But there's a different way, different ways. So, of winning. Yeah. Anyway. Sure. Exactly. And something that, that Bannon brings up that's really interesting uh, on in this uh, Red Scare interview is he says, we, we won on an inside straight. And, and what an inside straight means is like you have a uh, you have a shitty hand while playing hold them. Your, your hand is 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 shit the whole time. And then on the the river card, the last card in the the um, the shared pool of cards, you get a straight. That's that's an inside straight. So basically, saying like, well, we actually shouldn't have won. Our hand wasn't that good, and we basically lucked out through the electoral college, which I thought was an interesting point. But this whole thing about you know the Russians interfering, but actually it's still our fault that we lost, is what I'm talking about. This loss of being able to um, have a nuanced opinion, and I think that two. A huge example of this are two of the most divisive culture war um, discussions of our time. One is um, gun safety, and the other is um, uh, a woman's right to choose, right? These are two, for, for each side, very in- important things. And 
let's talk about the legacy of these wedge issues. The reason why these wedge issues that basically force us onto one side or the other in a public debate, it goes back to the, the, the religious right in the, the 19, late 70s and late 80s, who made politics rather than all about, rather than about sort of nuanced policy discussions, all about these wedge issues that just wedged you onto one side or the other. And what we lose here because of this is what, what I call nuanced political debate. So a perfect example, and this is, I'm not expressing any of my personal opinions about a, a, a woman's right to choose right now, because frankly, it's none of my fucking business, which is why I'm 100% in support of women's right to, 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 uh, to choose, because I'm not a woman and I'm not a fucking doctor, so I have no god darn right to say a fucking thing about it. In fact, I shouldn't even be able to, I don't think that men on the Supreme Court should actually be able to vote on this. I think only the women should be able to vote. <laughs> So that being said, Tulsi Gabbard, in her interview with the Red Scare Lady, she said, you know, my, my view on, uh, on a, a woman's right to choose is that um, abortions should be safe and infrequent, which is basically to say, uh, I believe a woman has a right to choose, but I don't believe that an abortion is a good thing. And in that, you know, maybe you can explore other, other places like, you know, adoption or, or something like that. Um, which is a nuanced opinion. You're not like on one side saying abortion is, is legal, or I'm sorry, abortion is evil. You're not on one side saying it's, it's evil, it's evil, categorically evil. And you're not on the other side saying that, um, well, abortion is always the right choice. And, uh, you know, under every circumstances, abortion is chill or whatever. And again, this is, has nothing to do with my fucking opinion. In fact, my opinion is I should not be allowed to have an opinion because it's not my fucking business. But the point is, because someone like a Tulsi Gabbard has this, this point, which is like, yeah, I'm, I'm pro-choice, but I also like kind of am anti-abortion in a, in a sort of weird way that I don't think abortion is a good thing. The people on the left are going to say, oh, you're, you're not 100% agreeing with me, so I'm going to wedge you on the other side. Fuck you. You're not on my side. You're just as bad as those, you know, um, those uh, abortion is, is, uh, is murder people on the other side. And then so meanwhile, on the other side, they're saying, oh, you believe that a woman has a right to choose? You're a fucking murderer. <laughs> And so the Tulsi Gabbard of the world is like, all right, well, I had some good opinions but uh, on some other things, but because I sort of expressed my own personal opinion on a very personal thing as a, as a woman, uh, I am getting shit on by both sides and no one's listening to me. So on, and then on the more manly side of this debate, let's talk about guns, okay? Yeah, guns. So on one side, you have the guys who are like, I don't think anyone should have a gun. Gunner, guns are evil. And on the other side, you're like, I should be able to have fucking machine guns if I want. And, and Obama's going to take away your guns because he's still in charge of the deep state. And then there's people like uh, a lot of people have shat on Bernie because his gun uh, control rate like rating was like a, an A minus or a B plus or something. Because a couple times he voted uh for things that would protect his constituents' right to bear arms, right? So he's sort of saying like, no, I don't think that people should have AR-15s. I think that people should have background checks. I don't think that crazy people should have guns. I don't think that if you're uh, not married, if you're a domestic abuser who's not living, uh, who's not considered to be the partner of someone because they're just the, the boyfriend who's living in there, I don't think that that guy should be able to have a gun so he can put, his, uh, put, this, put people in danger. Um, but yeah, I think that if you're, if 
you're a dude in Vermont that has like some remote place, you know, maybe you need a 22 so you can fucking, you know, I don't know, shoot (laughs) possums or something. You know what I'm saying? So, um, but if you sort of express that opinion where you're like, yeah, I don't think you should have AR-15s, but I also think that like, if, you know, you want to have a a rifle and you're out in the woods that, and you can safely lock that up and you're not a crazy person and we've checked you out, you should have that right. But the people on the right are going to say, fuck you. You're saying I can't have an AR-15. You're on the other side. And the people on the left are saying, Oh no, you're a murderer because you think a guy should have a 22 or should be able to have a 22. You're a fucking murderer. And you, you, you support, you hundred percent support killing kids. You hundred percent support. You just hate kids. And you think that kids should be murdered because you got an a minus on, on gun control rather than an a. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we've lost the nuance of opinion. So you can't have a discussion where you go, uh, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm actually, um, I'm actually pro-gay marriage and a woman's right to choose. Uh, but I'm also uh, pro being able to have a handgun if I take a safety test and I pass a background check and, um, and I have it locked up and I live in a remote area that's not an apartment complex. I think that uh, look, that's my opinion. That person has nowhere to go. And so they're going to get frustrated with the political process. So... So bringing it back to this Steve Bannon interview, he's, he has created a uh, uprising of totally just, <laughs> of let's face it, white nationalists, and he can argue his way around it and pretend to the liberal, uh, to the, 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 uh, li- the cool liberal podcast girls, he can pretend he's not racist, but the fact is he whipped up an entire a voting block of racist people to go to the polls uh, because they hate Mexican people coming into our country and they hate Chinese people. Uh, <laughs> uh, he will always be a horrible monster because of that. Uh, but, but he brings up this good opinion, which I think is a, a good opinion, that is uh, we, need to, um, we need to close the wealth gap. Steve Bannon was like, we need to tax rich people more. Rich people need to be paying for this stuff and we need to get rid of this uh, wealth gap and uh, we need to uh, get rid of uh, the way that, that uh, uh, the Chinese people are, are treated uh, as slaves for the benefit of not only the, the, uh, the money-making class in our country, but for the individuals who are you know, buying the, um, the laptops that we're podcasting on right now. You know, if this if this laptop was made in America, uh, you know, maybe it would cost a little more, but maybe it would uh, it would uh, uh, produce a little less suffering. So, wow, okay, he, you know what, I, <laughs> I, uh, I think he's uh, fundamentally a horrible person for basically what he's done for this country and strategizing for an evil guy. Um, but he has a couple of good points about globalism and why that might be bad, but. If I agree with if I agree with one thing Steve Bannon says, well then I am just on the side of racist dog whistling. Uh, let's kill protesters with the Dodge Challenger uh, over some Confederate landmark side of things. I think that that is a fucking shame. So anyway, I recommend everyone go out and and listen to uh, the to the Red Scare interview with Tulsi Gabbard and the Red Scare interview. Yeah. With Steve and then, and then nuancing is really interesting because I do find I find one of the most difficult things is it's it's all we really want to talk about 
a lot of times are the conclusions, what someone's uh, view is or something. But okay. yeah. what I find with some, some close friends when I'm talking to people, what I always try to do is try to help us develop how someone got to that conclusion. Right. Mm. And it's through that understanding process that we can understand someone's background right. or, or really what, what built them up to that argument because in that nuance or in that, in that description is where you find the nuance and where there could actually be a lot of common ground. Um, and sometimes, and sometimes someone's end uh, verdict changes, yeah. but also you can find a lot more common ground if the only thing we're talking about is not just, um, you know, are you for or against this? Right. And, and then obviously, you know, like a lot of the, oh, and then one of the other challenges too these days is that I was reading something yesterday it was an essay from a few years ago, but really looking at the shift to more and more coverage of really only national politics and not local. And yeah. um, I think actually that shows succession shows this in part that the, a lot of the, the television program on home box office. Yeah. I've, I mean, part of it is, you know, the purchasing of local news yes. channels and just kind of co-opting them and, and just having them only focus on national and, and forget yeah. about everything actually going on locally. But that's just something that's happening. These local, all of these Yeah. And that's been a trend since the sixties. Yes. Both the DNC and RNC actually were very much state organizations up until I think sure. it was the sixties. And then really. Which became, allowed nuance opinion. It really did. Yeah. And then, and now we it see. It also allowed like rampant racism and. Yeah. Uh, and that can be rights. a problem with people reading a lot of say New York Times or Wall Street Journal, Washington Post is like, those are not local news outlets. It's like, it's okay to read some of that, but if that's all someone's reading, yes. everything becomes about the federal. The Washington Post is a local news outlet, but it's a local news outlet based in the tiny district of Columbia. But it talks really about global and world issues. And the of thing course. is, I, it, that's one time that a lot of people consider, I think like the coastal elites or be smug or this or that. It's because all they're ever talking about are things that are otherworldly. Like they're not actually talking about their day to day, like uh, what's going on, which for a lot of people is actually still makes a difference. But once, um, and, and so sometimes it can be very difficult to, to talk about something so big and complex without yeah. breaking it down into all of its components. And that's where it's, it's like a lot of the nuance comes through and, yeah. and common ground can be found between people. By, right. by asking questions, having, you know, someone says like, oh, I don't support abortion. Instead of being like, oh, you're a terrible person. How dare you? It's hey, like, why, do you why do you come to that conclusion? And you yeah, might say, tell me about that. Like well, my, my mom got into, you know, my mom uh, had me when I was, when I was young and, uh, and she had the choice. Uh, she knew that uh, she wouldn't necessarily be able to concentrate as much on her career and uh and school if she was a 17 year old girl with uh, a kid but uh she felt a, a connection to me when i was um when i uh was uh became a zygote inside her and uh she felt like she would sacrifice a little bit of her um uh, her own goals in life to be a mother yeah and that that's why i'm pro that's why i although i'm pro-choice I also um, don't like abortion. So 
but so but not a lot we won't necessarily ask that person we won't necessarily get down to that that level of detail with the person we won't like you said we won't ask why we won't right. ask why it's and so it's, you think about the called active listening where yeah you really you say i hear you said this uh and then you ask a question or you say can you tell me more right as opposed to like no how, oh God! How or, dare you support this? Or even, or even the opposite, saying, "Yeah, hundred percent. Let's not talk about it anymore." Everyone who disagrees yeah. with us sucks. Or you start trying to dissect it, and then someone else at the table, like, "Whoa, this is getting too deep." And you're like, yeah. "Well, what else are we going to fucking talk about? We're talking yeah. about it. Let it go. Let's go. Let's do this." Well, maybe this localization, uh, this push, this this um, globalization of debate, let's call it, um, that might be sort of, and that that can be. Um, maybe that can be scaled back into a more localized discussion. And I think that maybe what we're seeing with this coronavirus lockdown is something like that is, um, and Gavin Newsom, I don't know if we talked about this on the, the pod last week, but Gavin Newsom said, we're a nation state. We're a nation state. Because he's basically said, we can't really rely on the federal government to support us in this virus. And we can't rely on what they're saying to guide our policy. Um, so in order to save our economy, save our people, and um, ethically emerge here as, as uh, on the right side of history, we're going to act as a nation state. We really are. Yeah. And well, all the, the states' rights, we all this, yeah. We, we don't have the ability to create money. Yeah, and all these states' rights assholes who for years have been using states' rights to say, no, fuck you, you can't get abortion, but you can get as many guns as you want, and we're going to disenfranchise black people. So black people can't vote, women can't get abortions, but I can have guns. States' rights, bitch. Yeah. Those fucking people, uh, I hopefully, they will see this bite them in the ass where they'll, you know, they'll say, um, you know, hey, this is the way we want to run California. We want to run California that if you want to get an abortion uh, because you were raped by your uncle and then you want to smoke weed afterwards to feel a little better and you would like to live in a neighborhood where crazy uh, abusers can't have handguns, that's the way we're going to fucking do it. And if the Supreme Court says, no, you can't, we're going to tell the Supreme Court to go fuck itself. And I think the reason we've put these people on the bench and and, and that is going to be the main main horrible part of the, the Trump administration is how many fucking people he's put on federal benches who are basically just fucking zealots that he's putting them on the bench because of their religious opinions on women's bodies. Okay. In order to please crazy uh, religious fundamentalists in order to get them to support him and vote for him and consolidate power to the Republicans, even though he's a dirty (laughs) non-religious person who can't quote a single quote from the Bible and has done is broken every single commandment. If as long as he puts these zealots on the bench. And so instead of putting like looking at, it's like, he knows it's a, it's a gamble. Cause he's not an ideologue. And well, no, cause he knows the majority of Republicans, they might not like what he's doing, but they're not going to flip is what his. Yeah. Because even though he's cheated on his wife, he's coveted his neighbor's shit and all of that stuff. He's broken ev- almost every single commandment. As long as he puts these uh, these zealots on the bench who don't believe a woman has a right to choose and that you should have, be able to have any guns you want and you should be able to take black people off the voter roll or not let them vote because they have um, because they have uh, uh, they don't have an ID, um, will support Trump. Yeah, and there'll be, and then, and then the neoliberal side, what we call the establishment on the Democrat, their bet was because a lot of people, you know, there's you you could call certain aspects of anything a religion, 
So sure. calling capitalism or how we define hey, our, it. The, the reason why people can't, reason why white people came here is for freedom of religion. But because of that, we've lost what I like to call freedom from religion, which I think is even more important. Yes, it's important that you can be Jewish or Muslim or Christian, or, or uh, but it's also very important for you to be able to be not like, I don't want to fucking follow your rules because of, you know, your religion. I follow the rules of law in my country. There's well, protection. Right, but if you look at and we don't have that protection. And so right. the states are going to have to ignore these people. They're going to turn into crazy Christian ayatollahs telling us what to do with their bodies. We're going to have to act like nation states and say, fuck you. No, we're going to protect our people in our state. Yeah, but we need, but there's two things that we also need is. But by the way, that sucks for the young girl who's living in Kentucky. Who's like, all right, well, I have an abusive father uh, who has guns and uh, I got raped by my uncle and I can't get an abortion. So that's why this is not the perfect solution because <laughs> basically right, because by the, becoming closed off and states rightsified or whatever, that young woman is, is fucked. And then if you look at people that are okay with it, what you don't get is like, let's say we wanted to massively increase the amount of social services given and allow people to make an actual living off doing it we don't have that ability as a nation yeah. state right now because we can't create money we can't create yeah. new money we can move around what we have yes and this is one of the big dilemmas. well we can create money for people who already have money that's easy and we're doing that with this this infusion of, of but that's from the cash into level. our system not, state of california doesn't have oh i see a bank no of course not money Nope, not yet. Yeah, exactly. That's why you're a, about those public money. banks. Yeah, because we could be a more, if you wanted more diffuse power, it's like some say something like the city of LA or the city of Alhambra or any city wants to um, kind of readjust where value is defined, uh, can do that by paying people to fulfill those things that have value. So if it's early childhood daycare, if it's yeah. caring for old people and you just pay someone to do that you create new money. And the thing is, if everyone agrees it has value, the world mm. keeps going round and things are fine. Right. And but you also have to do that right now because we don't, we, everything still has to go through the federal level. Yes. And you still and have to one of these cryptocurrencies doesn't solve the problem. No, of course That's not. That's like, it's a side good hustle. Because then, yeah, because then you can get incels to buy like $1,500 video cards and then do um, <laughs> and then do crypto mining, which I don't know exactly how it works, but apparently if you buy like a really good gaming video card, then you can uh, you can get cryptocurrency. I would do that, but the power supply on my computer is not. Yeah, I mean, there's some cool stuff that can happen there, but at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and it leads out a lot of other, countries at the of US. Uh, um, but so are we, what else are we doing today? We're just, yeah. just talking a lot. Yeah, no, 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 this is good. We're getting into uh, some good uh, wonky, um, wonky stuff here. And we have not been very funny. That, that's kind of been our, our breakdown is like, we start out with this crazy wonky discussion. And then we, uh, and I try to make sense of it by making analogies. And then we switch over and we talk to crazy people. Uh, so if you're someone who wants wonky policy discussion, you know, maybe those people are tuning out at the, at the end when we just, you know, talk to Sylvester Stallone, or maybe you're people who just want to hear, um, not celebrity impersonations, but actual talking to celebrities and you don't want to hear about, um, you know, Steve Bannon or whatever. <laughs> um, 
And uh, the the last thing that I will point out uh, that and, and it goes back to these things, the stuff about putting people on the bench and um, these ideologues on the bench uh, that goes back to um, but Trump not being an ideologue, but using that for his own uh, personal saving his own personal ass. Um, it goes back to something that another interesting thing. And the last thing I'll point out about the Bannon interview, which is that um, he thinks that it's that we're actually in a good place in terms of our uh, our policy debate and political engagement. Uh, you know, most people say like, oh, "This is not normal," and we're moving towards a a kind of ideological civil war because we've we've taken out all of the um, you know the niceties of the the discourse, and we're, we're more separated. Than other, you know, we're more divided than ever, and you know, we've we've lost the ability to have a, um, you know, a um, a friendly debate. <laughs> you know what I mean? That we're all just yelling at each other on on the other side of of the um, of the picket line. And what Bannon says is, no, no, we're more politically engaged. People are talking about politics more. People are coming out to vote more. Everything in life is becoming political, which, frankly, is is entertaining, not entertaining, engaging for guys like. Uh, people like us who want to, who are interested in this stuff, but for other people, it's probably exhausting, which is maybe in reason why not a lot of people came out to vote for Bernie is they're so exhausted by, by talking about this all the time. And mm -hmm. that he's like, because Trump is packing the court of the federal level, that's getting a lot of people to go out and vote. And he was uh, singing the praises of AOC. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Cause he was like, it's amazing. She's an amazing uh, uh, a figure that speaks to, to people in a populist way because you know a couple years ago she was a bartender making eight dollars an hour and now she is like one of the top five most influential people in politics and but and i was like oh that's interesting and then what he scared me is he was like i want a republican version of that i want some guy who was a bartender mm -hmm. and now he is the fucking because that's what i'm more i'm not afraid of of trump necessarily i think that trump is a um is not the the problem in and of itself. He's a byproduct of the problem. Yeah. He's a byproduct well, of this of ec you know, ec economic inequality. He's a byproduct of fucking racism and nationalism and bullshit. He'll go away, even if he manages to be president for life. He'll die at some point. Okay, but then someone else will come in. We'll get a we'll get some young guy out who's out now uh, talking about Pepe the Frog while playing Fortnite and t and 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 complaining about all of the the stupid libs at his school who are calling him, you know, calling him racist or whatever. And he's going to rise up and this guy is going to become a dynamic figure because he went from a, <laughs> he went from, you know, working at Walmart to now he's the, you know, the outspoken new voice in the Republican Congress. That, that asshole is who I support. The guy who is, has Trump's policies, but is not tweeting stupid things and is not necessarily as overtly selfish, who's young and dynamic yeah, and, and doesn't people, just gross people out. And people from background other than banking, finance, and lawyers. Like someone had this great graphic of the UK, of the yeah. British government uh, representation over the last 40 years. Yeah. Where there used to be like a good 20 to 30% of people came as farmers, teachers, things like that. And now it's like 5%. It's mainly people that were yep. in all of these. And I think what we're going to, like when he was saying about <coughs> the populist uprising, it may very well, I mean, I know it's going to happen, but it might yeah. be several years or more of continued consolidation of monopoly power where anywhere yeah. between 10 and 30% of businesses 
could be bought at will go out of business and either be yes. bought or just uh, whose, whose uh, functions will be taken over by someone big. Yeah. And so if we look at like, what are the conditions that led to say the American revolution or any revolution in the country, in the world? Yeah. It's, it's sometimes it's October, about food. Maybe. Yeah, sometimes it's about food. And a lot of times it's also about power structures. And so the yeah. things that people were railing against in terms of power were overly consolidated power. And whereas before it was say inherited through aristocracies and, and landowners like this, land is now data. And the owners, yeah. instead of being this like gilded elite from the czars or whatever. The czars, it's private equity firm owners and it's the big tech companies. And yeah. uh they're because a lot of their owner, like Google is owned by the they made their shell called Alphabet, so they could buy all they're all exactly. just these conglomerates. And it's so, like Philip Morris, they created yeah. like happy sunshine health exactly. services. So like the structures are, the ownership structures are still the same as hundreds of years ago. It's feudal. It's now, a- Amazon yeah, is a feudal power. Right, but we call them, but now we call it technology, tech, tech firms. Yeah. It's innovation, equity. Ben. It's, innova- it's Silicon right. Valley but innovation. That's what's so interesting that we think these is so good, but it's like, just replace words like aristocracy and um, gentry or feudal landowners with tech, with tech companies and private dynamic equity. executive leadership and bank holding companies. You know, they're not actually even banks. They have, they have, yeah. it's all their gambling houses they own too. And so as you can, as the powers, cause they're working to consolidate power right now. It's not really a managed decline. They're letting it, decline so they can buy all those assets at dirt cheap prices because yeah. they have direct access to the money to do it. And yeah. we don't. We see it on the micro level. Yeah. In, and, none in of it's, and none of it's natural. It was all yeah. done by decisions. It's we choosing winners. The Federal Reserve has put in something like 10 or $11 trillion uh, in the last 12 years, but the yeah. vast majority has gone to very few people. So it's not because they were more efficient or because they knew things better. It's because uh, the handouts were given to them. And so that just in my mind creates the grounds, the, the workings so that all the revolutionary energy, yes. which is totally at work right now, like it's incorrect yeah. for Bannon to be like, well, maybe they'll figure this out. It's just I the question of how it explodes, how it gets expressed. Yeah, it's if right voter- now it's being done more and more and more people are brought, being brought yes. into those circles every day because they're being locked out. And, and the census... What- the census yeah. is going to be a key part of it, okay? Because the, the question of whether it will be a kinetic revolution, as Mr. Bannon likes to call it, or just a or a peaceful revolution, because yeah, people are going to be so disenfranchised economically that uh, they're, they're going to have no choice but to uprise, rise up in some way. So the question is, um, will voter suppression get so bad? Will gerrymandering get so bad? Will consolidation of these uh, these what Bannon called inside straights in the electoral college get so bad? Um, will the stupid wonky rules of the political parties get so bad that uh, people um, basically can't vote out this uh, uh, this corruption that they have to like we have to rise up at a kinetic exactly. level or will or will it work out that like just the emerging demographics in the United States or, or make it impossible as uh, right-wing baby boomers uh, die out and make it impossible yeah. for the Republicans to get, ha, keep control 
over and the country. And it, we're which is, about I think, people. the ideal scenario. The ideal scenario is that we get a more a younger, diverse population who are voting, and they vote out these assholes, and the people who vote them die, and the people who are these these right wing assholes die too. That is preferable. That being said, if you continue to disenfranchise the people who would vote uh, for uh, Democrats, they will fucking get pissed off, and something you'll either have to kill them or they will rise up. So, which exactly. what do you want it to be, motherfucker? Yeah, because we're gonna and take your be, ass the fuck down. Yeah, and what we're they coming for you, motherfucker. Do, what they want, uh, what they generally want people to do is call it like, for lack of a better thing, like the nonprofit model, which is kind of doing things outside yeah. the political sphere. But right. a true revolution and a true rebalancing of power recognizes that although we could blame government, at the end of the day, we need to take those positions back. Yeah, to the people or the people that represent the people broadly based not this small elite class yeah because if you only ever try to work around it it's basically just kind of throwing your hands up in the air and being like you know what 99 percent of our life is dictated but as long as i only focus on this one percent i feel like every day i have agency in my life yeah like that's not enough for people for and the thing is you don't need everyone to start a revolution anyway it's what 10 to 20 percent of people yeah so a lot of people it depends on if the CIA depends on if the CIA is faking the revolution. <laughs> so, well, uh, for instance, when uh, uh, Mossadegh was, uh, and I, my wife and my father-in-law will tell me I'm, I'm mispronouncing this. When Mossadegh, I'm not sure, what, I'm not sure how to pronounce it because I'm stupid white American Jew. Um, when <laughs> he nationalized the oil fields in Iran, um, the um, the Brits at BP freaked out because they're like oh, oh, they're, right. they're taking all of our oil this yes. is i guess the, the 59 or whatever so uh -huh. the brits went to eisenhower and they're like oh these guys are communists dude the iranians are communists and that's why they're nationalizing oil fields so we better cause a a, a coup in the country <laughs> so so the the cia um they get duped by BP, basically. Uh, and, you know, BP was right in saying that they were going to get fucked by this, but they were wrong in saying that they had somehow a right to this oil, of course, or that this was somehow communist, that basically people should benefit from their own natural resources of their own fucking country. Um, but the CIA went in and they sort of faked this revolution. Uh, and again, I'll probably be corrected on this. If you want to go back into some of the earlier episodes on this feed, go back to the uh, coup in Iran episode of Inside Jobs with, with Brian uh, and Gene and I. There's some more info on this. Um, but basically, they, they went to these gyms in Tehran where there are all these like buff guys. <laughs> and uh, they paid these guys to like pretend to be protesters. I think they made them pretend to be communists or something. So they basically like hired like heavies to go out in the street and maybe it was the other way around. Maybe they pretended they were the revolutionaries. I can't remember what it was, but they, they use these guys to sort of fake a um, reason for a revolution. Like, Oh my God, there's crazy communists. We got to fucking take out Mossadegh. So they took out Mossadegh and uh, brought the, you know, the Shah back in control. And since the Shah was in control, um, uh, economic inequality uh, and just selling out to the West uh, was on the rise to the point where uh, they, they couldn't elect this crap out. They tried to. The Iranian people tried to elect this crap out by, by electing Mossadegh, but they were disenfranchised and uh, you know the Shah became wealthier and wealthier and the elites in the country became wealthier and wealthier to the point where they, they 
the people went nuts and they're like, fuck you guys. And they, they overtook the country. And, you know, the, in, you know, 79 um, was when the revolution happened and all of the public spaces were closed down. Okay. A lot of the public places where people could go and hang out were closed down. The one place that they were like, well, we can't close down the mosques. Right. Because that's just totally, you know, we can't do that. And because of that, that became the place where, um, where people, um, congregated and that's how the sort of ayatollahs <laughs> grabbed control of this country and, and i don't mean this in 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 any way a uh, anti-islamic uh, uh perspective um when i say that we are creating our own sort of ayatollah bench uh or uh, uh here out in um in the united states so anyway there's just an example of uh mm. of revolution that that tried to happen um uh, uh democratically they tried to vote in a person who was trying to get the resources back to the people of iran in the late 50s um and the cia and the the brits uh then uh brought their guy in which is of course this model happens in in south america all the time right um so let me one uh and, 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 it, and it led to a it led to a shitty revolution well i would say a shitty revolution to the point where now we're like um, you know, the people of Iran suffer. Again, their elites there are doing fine. The people of Iran are suffering now because of because of the way their government reacts and the way that we sanction people. And that's a chicken and the egg thing. Or like, are we sanctioning them because they're bad or quote bad unquote, or, or are they bad because we're sanctioning them? I don't fucking know. The, at the end of the day, people who suffer are Iranian people. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it didn't work out and fuck the CIA and fuck British Petroleum. So there was just this really good journal entry from someone who, grew up in, uh, she, I think she's either from the US or UK, grew up in Saudi Arabia. It's called, the title of the article is The US-Saudi Story Through the Eyes of an Aramco mm-hmm. Brat. Her name is Kezia Parsonen. It was yeah. in the Eric Review of Books, January 31st, 2020. Yes. Uh, as you were telling the story, I think it's just a very accessible, it's not a, it's, it's kind of like a, written as a journal entry someone she's got to probably be in what her 40s now looking yeah. back at her early days and kind of parsing out the saudi story part yes. of it relates to the 19th and the triangulation of wealth between wall street and washington saudi arabia and yeah, and, uh, some and the, the bank and the and the banking class in uh in, yeah and the bet made by in europe people. that triangulation between europe washington and and the saudis that fucks right. over Fucks over exactly. the Iranian people, causes uh, the Iranian government to support terror and terror to tear apart <laughs> the country uh, and then convince uh, neocon assholes and their uh, anti-Islamic people uh, supporting them to go invade sovereign nations and just hang people and fuck yeah. over the entire region and instigate the decline of American uh, of the American era. Well, with that, should we let that, our listeners get back on their day? I think it's good. Yeah, I think so. We didn't do anything. We didn't talk to any fun celebs today. So, yeah. um, you know, there, there's there's plenty of crap like that in the feed. So go back to maybe some of the older LGR episodes. And, and if you want if you want your fix of us talking to actual non-celebrities, we'll be back next week and we'll talk to some of the old guys. We'll we'll bring in um, we'll bring in some presidents and some uh, some celebs and all the people you yeah. like to hear. From. And let's ask our listeners who they'd like us to bring on. Yeah, to, absolutely. To bring on a, a guest, a, a guest who calls into our show. Absolutely. I know we have yeah, one actually for real. 
I know we have one actual listener that I know, which is my my dear friend Hannah, who uh, went to college with my sister and my wife, and and apparently she's been been listening. And um, she she texted my wife a, a really wonderful thing where she's like, I'm so glad that um, Lee has found you know such a great friend. Uh, in Ben, and that they can wonk out on weird policies and conspiracy theories. Uh, conspiracy facts, Hannah. Thank you. Okay. You're conspiracy theories uh, and uh, and uh, '90s video games like uh, like SimCity and Myst. So, uh, thank you for that, Hannah. Uh, and uh, and thank you to all of those people out there. Um, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna go back into the stats and see what countries we're getting uh, because we don't have a huge listenership, but we're spread out well across the, across the world. We have some and people who are listening all over the place. So hello, rest of the world. Thank you for listening. For Ben and for myself, I'm Lee Sanger-Golden, and you've been listening to us talk on the internet 